Hello. All right. We're going to read the Bible now. So our first reading is from Genesis 12, chapter 12, 1 to 4. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And our second reading is from Hebrews 11, 1 to 16. Okay. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about these things, not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them.
Well, good evening. How's it going? Good. That's an okay reply. I'll take it. Um, uh, my name's Jono. If we've not met, that's who I am, and I'd love to meet you later on, so come say good day to me. Uh, but it was good to hear about uh, Eva Youth back in the day just now, wasn't it? I, can, I actually turned up at Youth as a youth kid when Jace was a leader for a brief year there, and the rumours are true. I mean, yeah, I got there and they were like, you want to try boxing? And I was like, all right. And so they gave me gloves and the kids fought each other and we boxed. So <laughs> uh, early 2000s are a beautiful time to be alive. There you go. Um, everyone thought I was a leader as well. I turned up, I'm like in year 10 and they're like, when did you become a leader? And I'm like, no, I'm a kid like you. And anyway, so nothing's changed there. Jace looks 18, I look 50. Anyway, uh, let me pray though and we'll look at the Bible together. Oh, Father God, uh, your word tells us that uh, for those who seek you, you're there to be found. And so, Lord, we pray that we would meet you tonight in the words of Scripture, your voice to us. And Father, we, we're also told that your word never returns to you empty and that it accomplishes what you set out for it to do. And so, Father, please, we pray, would you bless us through this word to us tonight? Uh, Father, would we listen attentively and would your spirit be at work in our hearts to stir us up toward faith and transform us to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Well, how would you know if you succeeded at life? What would that look like? How do you measure success in life? There's a lot of different voices, a lot of different opinions out there about what that looks like and even sometimes not even things that are said but just quiet little subtle expectations that get chucked at us, isn't there? Uh, maybe it's from parents or uh, uni or, or work or something like that but in those kind of places the subtle expectation is success means nailing school, nailing a uni degree, getting a good job and once you've got that sorted, you get the rest of your life sorted out as well. Get married, buy a house, fill that house with some cool stuff, a dog and some children or whatever. People don't say it out loud but the vibe is that that is what it means to be successful in life. Now some of you guys tonight are 30 or, or older or whatever and you're like, yep, that's what people say and I've done none of those things, right? And then some of you guys are like 22 like the, the, those punks who go to TAFE and leave school in year 10 and by the time they're 22 they've got like two bitcoin and a house and <laughs> seven children and they're cheating the system because they left school early. I'm looking at you, Eden Farry and your friends or whoever else. Um, but, but is all of that how you measure a successful life, for real? Uh, now it could be actually that you'd say the opposite of that actually. Um, it, it could be that instead of having it all together and sorting out life, uh, maybe for you, your, your measure of success is literally to be free from all those kind of things that would try to tie you down. Uh, so not be tied down by commitments to jobs and families and all that kind of stuff, uh, but instead free to travel and experience as much as you possibly can. I was on a plane home from Brisbane the other week and I met this guy called Mitch and he was a really interesting guy. He had kind of tattoos from here down his shirt collar and they went all over his body and I was like, uh, why are you going to Newcastle today? And he said, I'm going to pick up a bus and sell it. I was like, okay, you got me, tell me more about that. Um, and so what had happened for him was in 2020, in 2020, COVID hit and he had a horrible time at the start of lockdown and he was like, I just got to get out of here. He lived in Melbourne of all places. So he bought a bus, kitted it out and with 
his partner, they hit the road and they just lived in this bus travelling all over Queensland for two years. And now he was heading home to grab this bus to sell it, not because he was about to settle down, but because he was about to sell it to get some money so they could go and live in Japan for a little while and give that a crack. It was pretty cool. Mitch didn't care what he did for work. He didn't care about owning homes and dogs and things like that. For him, success was all about experiencing as much good stuff as you could. He told me at one time that he heard he could get some work in WA, so he jumped in his car with a camper trailer and drove across the country, and when he got there, they were like, we don't have any work for you, man, and he was like, "Ah, oh well, so he hung out for a while and then trekked back home across Australia. He he had a good vibe, he was a fun guy to hang out with. Is that a successful life? I've got to say, chatting to him on the plane, I envied a lot of the freedom with which he lived his life. How do you know if you're living your life well? What's the target you're even shooting for? Now, if you're a Christian here tonight, you're in church, that'll be some of you guys, you'll probably remember that, well, there's a God in the middle of all this, isn't there? What would God say is the measure of a successful life? Because the reality is, we only have one and you want to get it right. There's there's literally no... Backsies. There's only one shot you have at life with the 80 years, if God's good to us, that we get. How do you know whether you're using it well? Now, I want to suggest tonight that the key to using your life well, the key to living a successful life, if I could use that word, is actually to live a life of faith. Now, that may sound to you like some sort of a massive Christian cliche, a cop-out, Uh, But that really is the point that's been talked about here in chapter 11. We read part of it just now. The God of the universe is telling us tonight, here in this word, how you can live right. And He says, it's all about faith. And so, let's have a look at this passage together, the key to not wasting your life, the life of faith. Now, the word faith, it comes up all over these 40 verses. It's just peppered through the whole chapter. And verse 1, first verse, picks it up straight away. It says, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, that verse, when understood rightly, it actually sets us up to understand what this whole passage is doing. But what's the point of what the writer... What, what is the writer doing here? Is this meant to be a definition of faith for us? Because faith, I want to say, is one of the most misunderstood words going around. If you Google the definition of faith, the first definition you get at the top is this one. Complete trust or or confidence in someone or something. Now, I want to say that's actually spot on. That's that's dead right. That's That's a perfect definition of biblical faith. When you see the word in the Bible... Usually, that's what it's talking about, complete trust, confidence in someone or particularly God in the Bible, usually, or something. So, faith in God, the Word, is interchangeable with trusting God or believing God at His Word. So, the dictionary at the top there, it's got our back. But the problem is, the second definition, as you read down after you Google it, is the religious one. And here's what it says. It says, faith is strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. Belief that's based on this kind of blind, wishful thinking hope rather than proof. 
Now, the world loves that definition of faith because it confirms their view of Christianity. Christianity is the belief in this sky fairy up there with no evidence, in fact, against the evidence, we just hope he's there somehow, but we believe because we just really, really want to as Christians. And to make matters worse, this is actually the definition that many Christians will run with as well. They'll say, yeah, that's right. I guess there's no, sometimes there's no good reason to believe, but we have faith anyway. You just got to have faith, we say. And finally, right here in chapter 11, verse 1, Well, lots of people will point to this verse right here and go, boom, there's your definition of faith. Confidence in what we hope for, I hope it's true, and assurance of what we cannot see. And so, hope is true. I mean, sure, I, I sure hope it's true, but who really knows, is kind of the vibe that some people get from chapter 11, verse 1. And so, here's the question, is chapter 11, verse 1 meant to be an airtight, definition of the word faith. Is that what the writer is doing here? Guys, I want to say no. The writer hasn't suddenly decided here in chapter 11 verse 1 to go from writing an argument to suddenly now writing a dictionary for us and in fact if you flick back just into chapter 10 at the end of that chapter, just a few verses earlier, he's been telling us about faith with a whole argument going along and so chapter 10 verse 38 he says, the righteous will live by faith not shrink back from trusting God, but living by faith. Chapter 10, verse 39, he's urging his hearers to live by faith, to continue trusting God. And then here in chapter 11, verse 1, he introduces this section by telling, this whole section by explaining that this is what faith does. This whole section is outlining what it looks like to live by faith. It's about what faith does, how it looks in a person's life. Verse 1 is not a definition of what it is. And in fact, verse 2 in chapter 11 uh, is a summary of what this whole section is about. Look at verse 2, he says, faith, this is what the ancients were commended for. And the ancients is this list of people that we're about to hear about just here. And what were they commended for? Living by faith. And the rest of this chapter tonight in front of us is a giant list, a long list of examples that shows us what faith does, what it looks like. And in understanding that, we'll actually understand what a successful life looks like. And so, what do we see in these examples? Well, rather than work our way through every single person in that list chronologically, I want us to hit a few of the big themes that unite some of the people in this list the big things that faith does as it's lived out in a person's life. And so, let's have a look at it together. Here's the first thing, this is right through the whole chapter, faith believes unseen future promises. That's actually, I think, what verse 1 is talking about. Not wishful thinking, when there's no good reason to believe at all, it's belief, taking God at His Word, even when you can't see the promises fulfilled yet. They're unseen, they're future promises. Now, there's a whole stack of examples that make this point, uh, but a good one is Noah in verse 7. So, skip down to Noah, verse 7, have a look there. It says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. 
as you, if you've read the account of Noah, you hear that God comes to Noah and He says, hey, there's a flood coming and it's going to be a big one. Build a boat, build an ark, you and your family and a bunch of animals as well, they can jump on and be saved. And it's not as if Noah at that point had the opportunity to kind of check his Apple watch and be like, yeah, bad weather on the horizon, I'm going to get building a boat. Building this boat took decades, it took years and years and years. He would have looked like an absolute idiot in the middle of the desert building a giant boat until his belief in God was proved right, when the flood did come. And so Noah's faith, well, he's commended for it, but by it, his faith also condemns the world by their lack of comparative faith. And then there's Abraham, another example, verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he'd later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Now, God makes some promises in chapter 12 that was just read out for us by Lauren, and it's pretty sketchy detail, isn't it? He's like, I'm going to bless you, it's going to be good, I promise, go. <laughs> he doesn't even give him that much, and he sets off into the unknown, to following a promise from God that he can't see with his own eyes yet. In fact, the same is true of Abram's wife, Sarah. Have a look at verse 11. It says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, which is polite by a long way, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, verse 11 is really helpful, so I hope you caught it there. Yes, faith believes in future promises that you can't yet see, God promises something that isn't in front of you to be seen yet. That's exactly what Noah and Abraham and Sarah did. But that faith is not baseless. It's not baseless. It's not in spite of the evidence. Now, to the human eye, in one sense, it was, wasn't it? Biologically, it was very unlikely that Sarah was going to have kids. But did you notice in verse 11 why she had faith, why she believed anyway? She considered him faithful who had made the promise. God had promised it. And so, guys, this wasn't mindless, wishful thinking. Actually, to believe this promise was the most logical thing a person could ever believe because of who promised it. God did. And so it will happen. You can bank it, you can count on it, not because you can see it yourself with your own eyes, but because the God who is faithful promise that it would happen. That's exactly the same thing going on back in chapter 10, in fact. Have a look back here, chapter 10. This is talking about the faith that we have as we hold on to our faith as Christians. Chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that, uh, that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The command is, hold on to the hope you have as Christians. Why? because the one who's promised is faithful. He'll do what He said He will do. God's got a really, really good track record of keeping His Word, like a 100% track record. Again and again, the history of our world is that God promises stuff and then God does what He said. Promised, keeps His promise. And so, Joseph does the same thing, he, he takes God at His word. In, in verse 22, in chapter 11 there, uh, Joseph, he asks that when he dies that his bones wouldn't stay in Egypt where God's people currently were, but that his bones would get taken to the promised land where God's people were headed, because Joseph knew that that's where God's people would go. 
verse 13 actually uh, it sums it up really well. This is like a commentary on all these people of faith. Look at what verse 13 says. It says, all these people, these people of faith, were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And so faith trusts the future promises of God, even while they remain unseen today, even up to the point of death for many of these people. Imagine for a second, um, you're shipwrecked at sea. Picture this, it's a dark night, darkness all around, deep darkness underneath you in the water, and and you end up in the ocean, drifting in the darkness. And then you come to like a rock sticking out of the water somewhere and so you and a bunch of other survivors, you cling on to this rock and you're holding on to this thing and there's this current that's ripping past the rock but you're holding on for dear life and then someone's like, hang on a sec, I know this rock, I've been here before. In fact, we can't see it in the darkness but there's an island just over there. If we let go of this rock and let the current take us, we'll be safe, we'll land on the island, it'll all be good. Faith would mean trusting that guy enough to let go of the rock and let the current take you off into the darkness. And hopefully, if he's right, to to safety on an island. Faith means trusting the voice of the one who says they know the way. Now, would you let go of that rock? Would I let go of that rock? I don't have a clue. It, it, It depends entirely on the person who's making that promise, what I thought of them and whether they're a person that I should trust. Well, God is the one who calls us to let go of that rock and follow Him into the darkness. So, in a sense, it is a blind trust in God who is 100% utterly trustworthy. He doesn't say, look, we can both see the island, let's go together. He says, you can't see, but I can. Trust me. I'm worth putting your trust in. That's the call of faith. Now, the big thing this does is that faith brings an entirely new perspective on life, on reality. It believes in the unseen future promises of God now. Remember I said at the start, how do you measure a successful life? Well, the world says... Everything there is to be had is here and now. Everything that you should live for and care about and be about is now. And so, good job, good reputation, good relationships, the house, the car, whatever, get it all together or get rid of that stuff and experience it all now because all that you have is here and now. That's all there is to it. Now, if they're right about that, well, then that's good life advice. But the life of faith recognises that there is more beyond. There's these future promises for an eternity with God, beyond what you can see and touch now. I wonder, if you're a Christian here tonight, I wonder if you were to compare your life with the average Aussie your age and down the street, how different would your life look to theirs? Would there be any differences in your priorities, in your goals, in in your decisions, in, in the way you're living your life? How does the perspective you gain from faith 
and the unseen future promises of God change all of that? Because it changes everything when you understand that this here and now isn't all there is to it. There's a future to come. Have you come to that place of trusting in this good God? There's really good reasons to trust Him, particularly because of who He is that makes the promises. But do you trust Him? Now, the next thing we're going to see here in chapter 11 shows us that it's really worthwhile being clear on this. You want to be clear on whether you trust this God or not. Because here's the second thing we see about faith here. Faith enables costly obedience. Verse 17, um, Abraham, again, is an example in verse 17, this time particularly of costly obedience. And he's faced with the prospect of sacrificing his only son, which we later learn God would not have him do, but yet he was faithful to God even in that. In fact, down in verse 23, Moses is a brilliant example of costly obedience. Have a look down at verse 23, Moses. It says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents, they showed costly obedience to God by going against the rules of the Pharaoh, which could have cost them their lives. Uh, But then look at Moses himself, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he got taken into the palace uh, by Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses was taken into the palace of the Pharaoh, the absolute ruler of the day. And guys, if you don't know your history, the Pharaohs are famous for their, for their luxurious lives. Uh, they, they lived in riches and in pleasure. Uh, these guys had servants for everything. They, they had these incredible lavish banquets that they could eat all the time, uh, sexual pleasure, whatever they wanted, endless entertainment. Everything was right there for Moses at his fingertips. It was there to be had. But instead, it says that he chose to be mistreated alongside the people of God, leave the palace, leave the fleeting pleasures of sin. And let's be clear as well, Moses didn't choose that and then God was like, good work Moses, now I'm going to give you lots of good stuff in life because you, you know, had faith in me. Instead, what he chose was to leave that behind, for what? To, to then go wandering in the desert for 40 years with this mob of people, uh, to eventually make it to the promised land where things would be good and die on the border before they went in. That's costly obedience. Now, did Moses ultimately miss out? Well, no. Have a look at verse 26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, which we'll come back to, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, this is a puzzling verse, isn't it, when it mentions Jesus there. Uh, in what sense did Moses decide to, to embrace disgrace for the sake of Christ? <laughs> uh, Jesus was born 1,200 years after Moses. Uh, so, what, what is this even talking about? Well, in what sense did Moses do that? Now, one possibly very simple explanation is that Christ is a title, by the way. So it's, it's not Jesus' last name, it's a title, it means the anointed one, the chosen one of God. So it could be just simply saying that he chose to be, uh, to, to go through disgrace with 
the chosen people of God. Perhaps you could be using the word that way, the Christ as the chosen people of God. Um, but even if it isn't that, did you notice that this whole passage is actually full of people who, seem to, who are from the Old Testament part of the Bible, but they're living in light of New Testament realities in some way. They're living their lives looking forward to promises that we don't see the fulfilment of until the New Testament. Verse 16, Abraham is living for a better better country and a heavenly city, which I think is actually talking about heaven itself. The fulfilment of that promise to Abraham will come ultimately in heaven. Uh, Verse 15, it talks of, uh, verse 35, sorry, talks about prophets who undergo torture expecting a better resurrection. Again, a New Testament promise that finds its fulfilment for us. So it could be that in some sense, Moses. Moses' suffering, as he chucks his lot in with God's people back in Exodus, is foreshadowing the suffering that Jesus will suffer on the cross. It could be talking about that. Not that Moses knew Jesus' name or something like that, but he suffered on God's team with Jesus, the ultimate one who suffered. And now today, as we suffer as Christians, we suffer looking back at Jesus, who suffered disgrace and went to the cross, But in some sense, the people of the Old Testament suffered looking forward to Christ, who would come and suffer. Um, I've I've got a friend, Hazy, in fact, he's right there. Hey, Hazy. He he has this saying, delayed gratification is the key to success in life. And I think he just stole that from his dad, basically. There you go. He knows the saying, his dad actually does it. Uh, Delayed gratification is the key to success in life. Now, just in this life here, what that means is if you make good decisions today, delayed gratification, your life will be better in 10 years. So, save and invest, don't spend and you'll be rich later on in life. Study hard, work hard at school and uni and you'll get a good job later. Exercise and eat right now and you'll live longer and happier, which is definitely true for his dad, actually. He's, he's an absolute unit who makes young people look unfit. Suffer now, glory and reward later. Now, there's a whole bunch of truth to that just in the everyday of life, sure, Um, but if you locate that concept just in this life, you get one thing massively wrong. You get the timeline wrong. Delayed gratification is the key to living well, but on God's timeline, that means waiting to the next life to reap the reward. Moses, he gave up the fleeting pleasure of sin now for an eternal reward to come? That's the question you've got to wrestle with. Are you willing to do that? I asked my growth group this week, I said, um, what does it cost you guys to be a Christian? What's it look like to follow God, to have faith in Him, leading to costly obedience? Um, where does it bite? And people offered a whole bunch of really good thoughts. Uh, person number one, Maddie. No, I'm not going to read out. No, not at all. Uh, s- some of us offered um, stuff exactly like what Moses gave up the fleeting pleasures of sin, sexual pleasure. Now, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be free to enjoy pleasure any old way that I wanted. That's what some people say. You could sleep around, pornography, whatever you want to do, go and enjoy. I distinctly remember being at uni. I wasn't married and I remember looking around at my uni mates and just thinking, man, these people are so free compared to me. They're not concerned about their boundaries with their boyfriend or girlfriend. 
they just it doesn't even register in their minds. They go on holidays together, they can do whatever they want, there's no long drives home at the end of the day. Um, I remember seeing that and thinking, man, that seems so much better in some ways. Now, with the value of hindsight and perspective now, I don't actually think I was right, but that's what I saw at the time. In fact, many Christians will actually face the costly choice of lifelong celibacy. That's it. That is not getting married, not, not having sex. Whether it's because you're a single heterosexual person who has chosen to remain single or life's realities have meant that's the case for you, or it could be because you're a same-sex attracted Christian who decides that marriage and sex won't ever be an option for you, that's costly. And so to choose a life of singleness and celibacy is costly obedience to Christ. And I can actually say, brothers and sisters who choose that path to honour God um, should be honoured. They deserve deep respect for the way they choose to obey Christ and honour Him in that. Um, other people in my group, though, said partying. Um, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be out drinking and partying every weekend, like my mates are. I wouldn't be getting up early on a Sunday morning to make sure I get to EV kids. I'd be sleeping through Sunday morning because I was up all night on a Saturday just living it up. And maybe you feel that way as well. Others just said free time is a big part of the cost. That's where the crunch kind of bit for them because the reality is without a commitment to Jesus and His people and serving them, I just do whatever I want to do. Want to do something? Go do it. Want to play a sport on this or that night? Go for it. Um, other people mentioned freedom just to travel and just live wherever they wanted to. Um, move about, just be free. A little bit like my mate Mitch that I mentioned from the plane. So if you're like, looks like the waves are better on the north coast, well, I'm just going to go there. Is there a church there that's worth belonging to and serving in? Who knows? Who cares? I'll just go live there because it looks good for a while. Other people mentioned jobs giving up jobs that they loved because they wanted to be freed up to serve Jesus in full-time ministry. Costly obedience is not going to look the same for all of us, it's going to look very different in fact, but faith in God and His Word leads us there as we continue to follow Him. And in fact, guys, notice this, that faith is the very thing that fuels and enables us to do this, (laughs) It's the thing that enables us to live this way. You must have faith in God if you're going to follow Him and live this way in light of His promises. Without faith, you would never live this way. You just wouldn't. Instead, you just live for whatever your eyes can see right now, whatever's in front of you, you just do that. But faith calls us to something that's harder, but also something that's so much better. A better future, a better reward, but it's later. And exactly right, it's better now even. That's the nature of faith in God's plans and promises. To trust His future promises and so live accordingly now. But that's not all, because in fact this passage offers another amazing thing that faith does. And this really is quite brilliant. Faith pleases God. Did you know you could please God? Sounds kind of obvious, doesn't it? But I think sometimes we get so used to hearing, you cannot save yourself by your own efforts, you can't earn your way to heaven, you can't be good enough for God by doing the right things yourself, and that's true, that's what the Bible teaches, but actually, sometimes we actually then hear all of that and we begin to believe that it's actually not possible for us to do anything that pleases God at all. 
for anything that we do to make Him happy. But, as people saved by grace, as people saved by faith in Jesus who died for us, you can actually please God. You don't believe me? Well, have a look at the passage, look at what the people of faith did. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel brought a better, a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. That is, God was pleased with what he did. That's what verse 4 is saying. Verse 5, Enoch, he pleased God. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was commended as one, sorry, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch pleased God. Now, what is it that all these people are doing that pleases God so much? Well, it's their faith. That's the thing that pleases God here. Lives lived believing the promises of God. And in fact, this passage actually says that it's impossible to please God without faith. Have a look at verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And so, faith is the very beginning, the foundation of any sort of a relationship with God that can please Him. And actually, if you have a look down at verses 13 to 16, that whole section there is this commentary on these people who lived lives of faith. But look particularly at verse 16. It says something remarkable. Look at verse 16. All these people who lived by faith were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared a city for them. There's this amazing kind of inversion that's mentioned there in verse 16. It doesn't say that they're allowed to call God their God, although they are, of course. It says that, that God is not ashamed to be called their God. <laughs> He's theirs. <laughs> He's happy to be owned by them. Not that we own God, but He's happy for them to bear the name of God. He is their God. I am pleased with these people. There's no stronger commendation you could have from God than to be able to bear the name of the God of the universe to say, He's mine, that is my God, the God of the universe. And the key is faith, it pleases God. In fact, let me just clarify this, because it's really important to grab. Faith helps us relate to God, and that's an understatement, in two really important ways. First of all, faith and faith alone in Jesus, who died on the cross, is the, is the very means by which we're saved. Without it, you will not be forgiven. You are made right by faith in God, trusting in Jesus who died for you. Um, we have faith in Jesus' death on our, our behalf and we're saved. Right? And so that's like chapter 10, verse 38 talks about how the righteous will live by faith. We're saved by it. It's the means of our salvation. Uh, but secondly, uh, this passage shows us a second dimension to faith as well. Faith in God is also, in and of itself, pleasing to Him. Faith in God is a thing that, as we do it, it makes God happy. Now, don't confuse the two. I'm not saying that by having faith in God, 
we please Him enough such that we're saved by a good thing we do. No, no, our faith in God is grabbing hold of a free gift of salvation, but as His saved people, our lives of faith, our trust in His promises and living, following Him by faith is pleasing to Him as well. It's not adequate to save us, uh, but it brings a smile to His face. He loves it, He wants that from us. Now, Um, Here's a picture my son Luca drew of me when he was three and let me be honest with you guys, this is far from a perfect picture of me, there's a bunch of problems I have with it, I don't have four eyes, I'm not shaped like a potato, Um, my arms are roughly the same size despite what he's done here on the screen Um, but when I come home from work and he says, hey dad, here's the thing I drew for you, I did this for you, I'm not going to be like, it's a piece of garbage. What's going on here? You've only used one text to colour, for starters. You could have put some other colour in there. The lines are all squiggly and you clearly don't have any concept of basic composition. No, I'm not going to do all of that. He's my son and I love him and so his efforts please me. I've not come home to the Mona Lisa yet. He's probably never going to make it into an art museum. But I love him. He is my son And so his efforts please me, no matter how imperfect they are. And the same is true of our God. He's never going to look at our lives and go, they've done it. Look, they've pulled it off. Perfect obedience. No, Jesus has done that for us. By faith, we receive this salvation, this position of being his children. And because we're in Jesus, because we are his children, because of our faith... Because He loves us now, even our broken efforts to please Him genuinely do. Specifically in this passage, our faith, living by faith, pleases Him. How good is it that what you do can please the Creator of the universe? That our faith in Him is a pleasing thing. The mighty God of the universe looks at us in our flawed efforts and our flawed, weak faith and says, that pleases me, brings a smile to God, trusting Him at His Word and living in light of His promises. My costly obedience, all of that pleases Him. Can you think of a better grid to live your life by, to evaluate whether your life is a win or a fail? I asked at the start, how do you know if you're living a successful life? Well, the world says get the job, family, whatever, get, get it all together or chuck all that out and go and experience as much as you can. But God says live a life that pleases Him. Is there anything better you could give yourself to in this life? Because that's what the life of faith does. All right, there's one final thing I want us to see in this passage tonight, one final thing that faith does And it's going to mean that you'll spend your life well. And so let's catch this. Faith ends in God's blessing. So although the life of faith involves costly obedience and even suffering, as you see at the back end of chapter 11, don't miss the amazing victories and the amazing blessings of God for those who have their faith in Him. Have a look at verse 29. Have a look there. This is the Red Sea. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. God gave the victory to His people by faith. And so 
they were saved. And have a look again, verse 30 there. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around them for seven days. That would have been a strange command to follow, wouldn't it? March around the city for seven days, make a bunch of noise. But that bizarre act of faith will lead to God's victory and salvation for his people. Verse 31, you see salvation on the personal level for Rahab. Uh, who trusted God. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient, the, the enemies of God's people. In that story, Rahab's physically saved, physically she receives salvation, but she's also spiritually saved, we know, because she was kind of added into the people of God. She joined in with God's people and so by that same faith, Rahab is now right with God today. The list of God's blessings and victories, it runs right through, through to verse 32. By the time he gets to verse 32, he's kind of just like, yada, 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 there's a lot of other people I could mention, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jeff, David, Samuel. He's just like, there's too many, I'm not going to mention them all, but then he kind of does a bit. And he's like, let me just tell you what they did. Kingdoms conquered, mouths of lions shut, flames quenched, swords escaped, weak people winning battles against the strong, even the dead raised to life again victory over and salvation from death itself and all of that while facing all sorts of severe opposition and persecution verse 36 to 38 see all through this chapter we've been seeing what the life of faith looks like it trusts in the future promises that you can't see yet it chooses costly obedience it enables costly obedience it pleases god and it ends in salvation Verses 39 to 40 at the end there, it's pretty much a summary of all of this. It says, these people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, future unseen, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's everything we've been talking about up to this point, isn't it? But with one critical difference that I don't want you to miss. Verse 40, here we get added onto this list as well onto the list of those who have faith. See, up until now, he's been talking about the heroes of the past in the Old Testament who had faith in God, but verse 40, we see where all of them, where all was headed for them, and it was headed for us. (laughs) These great men and women of faith were waiting to receive what we now see the fulfilment of today in Jesus, so that together with us, would they be made perfect in heaven. God planned something better. He planned it for us. We have it in Jesus. If you've been tracking your way through Hebrews with us, you'll see how again and again he talks about the fact that we have something better in Christ. In Jesus, we have a better priest, a better sacrifice, better covenant. And now we see that he brings better promises which we receive by faith. We have in full what they only had in part as they waited for this future that we are now in. They receive their reward in heaven with us when together we're made perfect. And so then tonight, we're left with this challenge. Do you want to join this list? Do you want to write your name here on this list? Are you going to choose to live by faith the way these guys did? Because that's where it's all been headed, to these commands, which is next week's passage actually, but just catch this, chapter 12, verse 1, in light of all this, chapter 12, verse 1, 
Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people he's just been talking about, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Imagine you're in a relay race, right? And it's, I don't know, like a 40-kilometer relay race. And so there's all these people, they've been running all day, handing the baton on person to person. That's the people of the Old Testament. And they've run 39 and a half kilometers. There's only 500 meters today to go. And they get to us and they hand us the baton. And the stadium's full with everyone who's run the race now watching on and cheering us on. Run, run, run. And you grab the baton right at the finish line this close. And you're like... It's a pretty warm day. I might grab a seat in the shade for a little while. (laughs) No, run, run the race, gut it out. (laughs) Look at those who've run before you. Look ahead to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Run the race, live by faith. His promises are unseen, requires costly obedience, but it pleases God and it ends in salvation. Eternal reward. So keep going. Keep going by faith. Friends, this is what it means to live a life well. Run this race. Live the life of faith. It's seeing the whole, it's seeing the whole picture of heaven and hell. The reality of eternity. And living in light of that now. Living wisely in light of that by faith. Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Gives perspective, doesn't it? A life lived well is a life that recognises the big picture, that all that you can see and touch and feel now isn't all there is. And so will you live by faith? The life of faith. Let's pray to our good God and ask Him to help us run this race. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your work through all history. Uh, we, We praise you that you are a God who is so worthy of our faith. You've demonstrated your goodness, your faithfulness again and again through generations. And so, Father, please help us to keep clinging to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who saved us and shows us how to live trusting you. Help us to keep clinging to him for our salvation and looking to him as our model, the one that we run in the footsteps of. We pray that we'd continue in this for our good and for your glory. Amen.